You are listening to the DFJ Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. Today, we're very proud to present Michael Ackerman, Vice President of Neurostimulation at Allergan, a bold, diversified global pharmaceutical valued at $80 billion. The company is a leader in a new industry model called Growth Pharma. Its portfolio includes best-in-class products for a host of medical conditions, including the central nervous system, eye care, medical aesthetics, women's health, and more. Michael was the CEO of Oculeve Incorporated, which was acquired by Allergan in August 2015. Michael co-founded Oculeve while in the Stanford Biodesign Fellowship Program and spun it out of the university in 2012. Michael received a BE degree, magna cum laude, in biomedical engineering from Vanderbilt University, and MS and PhD degrees in biomedical engineering from Case Western Reserve University. Michael holds a graduate degree from the Stanford University Biodesign Fellowship and is a Vision Research Fellow at Stanford. He has numerous patents and peer-reviewed publications. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Michael Ackerman. Well, great. Well, th thank you very much for the kind introduction. And how are we doing out there? Everybody, anybody who has an election hangover, this is an election-free zone. Um, so today we're going to talk about something fun. We're going to talk about innovation in healthcare. And in part through telling you the story of Oculeve, uh, the company that I co-founded out of Stanford. Uh, to treat dry eye disease. And it won't be a surprise to most of you if, if anyone you know, has read the news in the last couple of years, you know the healthcare is changing, right? So we're seeing increased expenses. Um, there's a lot of things that are changing in the environment as a result of that. It may even be hitting your own pocketbook. Um, but what I thought we would do is just look at the change by the numbers. So uh, the graph on the left here shows healthcare spending as a fraction of our GDP over the last 50 years. Uh, you'll see that it's going up and to the right. And 2014, the last year for which data uh, was available from the government, we spent 17.5% of the GDP, 17.5% of the entire gross domestic product on healthcare spending. It was down in $3 trillion. And we're feeling it, right? I mean, so it, we're starting to hear about uh, pressure on prices. We're starting to hear about uh, healthcare premiums going up as some of that cost gets shifted to the patients. Uh, and we're hearing about it in terms of consolidation in the industry. Another phenomenon is happening. Um, so the plot on the right actually shows the fraction of Americans that are insured, right? And you'll notice in the last couple of years, um, largely because of the, the Affordable Care Act, uh, there's a very large increase in the, the number of, of Americans that are insured as well. And I, I do believe that even under a, a Trump presidency, there's going to be um, some impetus to provide uh, a program for uh, uh, driving insurance uh, amongst the population. So what's happening is that we're, we're running out of uh, room for growth in healthcare spending. We have more people who need to be treated. And we're all starting to feel the pinch, right? So we're feeling it as patients, and we're certainly feeling it in the industry. So our government also makes available the expenditure in terms of where this $3 trillion is going. So let's take a look. So more than half of that $3 trillion is going to hospitals. It's going to doctors and to clinics. About 9% of it's going to drug companies. About 
uh, 3% of it is going uh, to medical device companies, and then a, a series of other things, uh, including, I think, notably a 7% that actually just goes literally to support the infrastructure of the insurance companies uh, and the, the federal Medicare and Medicaid. And every slice in this pie is feeling it. Um, so there is drive on every single uh, one of these to, um, to start becoming more efficient. And we can see that in terms of consolidation. And so what's happening on the, uh, private practices are being brought up uh, and consolidated into hospitals. We see hospitals that uh, largely had been independent for a long period of time consolidating into hospital systems, both regional and national. Uh, we're seeing consolidation in the drug companies. We're seeing consolidation of, in the insurance companies and in the device companies as well. And all of this is in an effort to drive more efficiency in the system. So let's look at another dimension. So now we know where the dollars are being spent. You know, what is it being spent on? So according to the CDC, it's down to 86% of this $3 trillion is being spent on management of chronic diseases. And so that chronic, uh, his chronic diseases include things like heart disease and diabetes, um, some types of cancer. Um, but it also includes things like dry eye disease, uh, which uh, is what our company was focused on um, and something that I'll tell you more about. And so what does all this mean? Well, um, something that's sending a little bit of a shudder through the industry is, is frankly, that there's going to be a higher bar, right, in terms of uh, providing efficient treatment. And so that's the, the technologies that are more expensive for incremental benefit, um, frankly, probably aren't going to get into the marketplace anymore, um, at least not as easily. Um, so that's the bad news. But what's the good news is that there is a heck of a lot of opportunity out there. So you have this $3 trillion marketplace, this enormous industry that is literally changing under our feet right now. And there's huge opportunity because someone has to, to be an agent for that change, right? There's tremendous opportunity in this consolidation as well. So one of the things, and we'll talk about it a bit, that has actually hindered some of this, uh, this change and change by technology is that there's very separate groups, right? I mean, you go get your, your broken leg fixed by one physician, you get your eyes fixed someplace else, um, and your primary care physician, who may have referred you to these places, um, can't even look up in their medical records to see exactly how that went, right? So that consolidation actually can be a real opportunity as well, particularly on the information technology side. And then uh, layered on all this, there's really a tremendous opportunity in chronic disease. And so providing better or, or uh, frankly, just more efficient uh, ways to care for chronic disease. So logos of our friends and neighbors here in Silicon Valley, right? I mean, we're here, we're used to all this technology coming in and completely transforming a marketplace, right? I mean, it's the way that we connect, it's the way that we buy goods, the way that we get around, the way that we interface with the world. Um, and we're used to these, um, these big technologies coming in and, and making a real difference, right? But here, healthcare, 17.5% of gross domestic product, and none of those logos are a healthcare company, right? And it's been very, very slow uh, to, be, to be converted by big technology. So why is that the case? Well, there's a few reasons. So one is that there's a very complex network of consumers. So if you're Amazon, it's very clear who your consumer is. It's the person who's buying the goods, right? Yeah. Well, in, uh, in healthcare, it's a little different. You have the patient, which is what we typically think about. This is someone who uh, is either being diagnosed or being treated. Um, but frankly, a lot of the time, they're not even the one who's making uh, the decision as to which product to use, right? 
a decision is oftentimes being made or at least heavily influenced by a healthcare practitioner. This is the doctors, the nurses, the technicians. These healthcare providers very typically operate in a hospital or a hospital system. And so that hospital also has tremendous decision-making um, uh, ability over what products are used uh, for the, the patients and by the practitioners within their, uh, within their system. So yet another decision-maker. And frankly, all of the, none of these people are actually paying for any of it, right? So it's all paid for by an insurance company or it's paid for by the federal government, Medicare and Medicaid. So yet another customer that has to decide that this is the right, uh, the right technology to use. This is also a highly regulated industry, so you also have to satisfy the FDA. And they have their own sets of needs and requirements. And it's also an industry that's very heavily influenced by the professional medical societies. So these are uh, societies that provide guidance to the practicing public. You know, what are the, what's the best practice to use and to not use? Uh, and they also have very heavily uh, influence over the payer system as well. So what uh, products actually ultimately end up getting, uh, getting paid for and make the list? So, okay, why don't we have Amazon of healthcare? Well, one of the reasons this is a very complex network of, uh, of consumers. Why else? Well, it's also a very conservative um, uh, industry by nature, right? And that's actually probably justified. So we are talking about people's health. If we make bad decisions, there are very real and bad consequences for it. So every physician, before they start practicing, they take the Hippocratic Oath and they vow to first do no harm. And that attitude actually uh, pervades not only um, the physician community, um, but the FDA and industry as well. So it's uh, everyone wants to make sure that, that things are safe. Another thing is that medical innovation you know, oftentimes relies on new science. And sometimes new science happens a lot slower than new software. <laughs> so it could be, uh, be a, a tough thing to, to go there. We have a distributed provider system. Um, and meaning, as I mentioned before, you go one, one place for your, uh, for your knee and another place for your eyes, another place for your heart. Same thing with the payer system, all of these different payers all over the place. Uh, and then also, uh, finally, both ethical and legal privacy concerns as well. So maybe it's no wonder why we haven't seen this big, enormous splash, right? We haven't seen someone come in and just completely transform um, this healthcare space. But what really excites me, and what I think should really excite you, and I'm hoping uh, that if you, if you in the audience will, uh, will want to take a good hard look at healthcare, because um, frankly, I mean, this is really a once in a career type um, shift or opportunity. Uh, what we are starting to see is a lot of little splashes. And we're gonna start seeing a heck of a lot more than that. So coming into one disease space at a time, coming in attacking one efficiency, inefficiency at a time, and this is really gonna start snowballing. So uh, for the rest of today, I'm gonna to talk to you a little bit about uh, Oculi, this company that I uh, spun out of, of Stanford with some others. Uh, this is the device that we developed uh, for treating dry eye disease. Uh, take a good look at it because it's not the device that we started with. Um, so uh, that's all part of the story too. And so biodesign, it's this center um, over in the Clark Center, so right down, uh, right down campus drive. And it's just a really neat space. And, and so um, the, the plug there is that they also have an undergraduate and graduate course sequence in addition to this fellowship that, um, that I was a part of. Um, so I, I would encourage you to, to take a look at it. And what they've done is they've taken this philosophy that I think has really pervaded a lot of Silicon Valley in the last couple of decades uh, that also was developed here, this 
empathy-based design. So this is by David Kelly and Tom Kelly, uh, other folks at the D School here at Stanford, uh, really formalized this process. And the idea is that by going and understanding the consumer, right, and getting uh, gaining empathy for them, then you can really understand what their needs are and develop a solution for that need. And in the healthcare space, uh, uh, Paul Yock and Josh Mackauer, the founding faculty um, of BioDesign, took that same principle and brought it to healthcare. And in healthcare, again, the consumer is a little more complex if you had this network, uh, but the same principle turns out to be really powerful. So the mantra there is a great clinical need uh, is the, uh, the DNA of a great solution. In healthcare, for a long time, we, we've uh, talked about bench to bedside. And this is where you, you know, you've got this great scientific idea, um, and we have a way we're going to now convert this into clinical practice, right? Um, and that's been really the, uh, one of the mainstays of, of innovation in healthcare. And, and frankly, it's still, um, still very important, right? Um, the catch is you have to have a great scientific <laughs> uh, uh, innovation in order for that to work, right? So, um, unlike me, I certainly didn't. Uh, I, I came into biodesign um, with uh, three other people uh, in, in our group of four. It was quite literally assigned to go innovate in ophthalmology, right? Um, I didn't know anything about the eyeball. I knew I had two and that they were important to me. Um, but frankly, I was a little disappointed. I was like, oh, this thing's the size of a ping pong ball. You know, what could possibly be going on in there? I'm sure everything's already fixed. Um, and fortunately, I was very naive. Um, but what biodesign teaches, and again, it's this empathy-based design, is this really bedside to bench to bedside. So you go back, unless you already uh, happen to be sitting on this great and important discovery, um, you can go back and say, hey, look, what are the needs, right? And we know that there's this huge driving force in healthcare in terms of, of efficiency that can really be um, the seat and the, the tidal wave for a lot of that as well. So here we are. This is our group of four. Uh, Brandon was an engineer. Um, Victor McRae is a surgeon. Uh, and Garrett Smith was an engineer and scientist. And um, again, we were assigned ophthalmology to go, to go innovate something. Uh, one of my favorite things about Stanford, and I'm sure you guys are experiencing this already, but um, this is just, it's incredible because you have a question about something and like the world's complete expert is literally two buildings down, right? So you just go knock on the door and you talk to somebody. Um, we actually got very fortunate that there was a, a very uh, passionate and, and innovative MBA student uh, who also happened to be an ophthalmologist and in fact a specialist uh, in dry eye. She had spent additional trainings uh, spe specifically studying this. Um, and so we partnered up with her, Bondana Jane, um, as well. So as part of this biodesign program, it, um, there's this immersion, right? So first you got to go get the empathy, right? So we spent four weeks, and we literally just watched clinical care. So we sat around, we goofed off a little bit. This is Garrett here, uh, empathizing by sitting in the, the patient's chair. Um, but we watched patients come in, and we watched uh, physicians do surgery. Uh, we watched what the issues were. Um, and, and I was just amazed, frankly, um, by coming in with a, a very naive beginner's mind, um, how quickly it is that you can start identifying issues, identifying inefficiencies, and identifying opportunities. So in the short uh, three to four weeks, we identified some 347 unmet clinical needs. We went through a filtering process that was primarily uh, looking at what is a real clinical problem, what represents a, a bona fide commercial opportunity, uh, and ended up with dry eye disease. Um, and 
Uh, if you're a little bit like me, the first time I thought I heard of dry eye, I was like, dry eye disease? Like, really? <laughs> is this a real problem? Um, turns out it is. So if, if you were watching television last night, you may have even seen some commercials for some dry eye drugs. And that's because 8% of the population has dry eye, primarily postmenopausal women. Um, and it ranges from something that can be a bit of a nuisance to something that, frankly, is very debilitating. Um, so it actually, uh, a really um, phenomenal public, uh, public health impact um, in, in a big market. And so our real insight here, the, the, what, what we um, came up with and what kind of allowed us to, to, to hang on to something that was kind of special is that at the time, and I think frankly still, um, people think about dry eye in terms of this very complex uh, system that's going on. There's 40 boxes you know, in this model and there's 80 arrows pointing around to all the things that are happening. Um, and frankly, what we said is, okay, but if you boil it down, there's really only two boxes and two arrows. Okay? The body is not making enough of the tear, and the tear is very important. It helps, uh, helps your cornea clear so you can uh, stay clear so you can see, nourishes the eye. Um, and if you're not making enough of it or some part of it, then the eye becomes dry and inflamed. And the more inflamed it becomes, the less able your body is uh, able to make these to, uh, the, this tear and kind of round and round to go in this cycle. And what's interesting is when we layered the pharmaceutical industry on top of this and the device industry, which frankly there, there is very little happening in, all of the, the people and that were focusing on innovation for the last 20 years, things in the marketplace, things in the pipeline, everything was focused in that left box. Okay, everybody was attacking inflammation. And no one, not for 20 years, had, had someone gone and actively looked at uh, restoring these natural constituents of the tear film. So that, along with uh, just, frankly, uh, some muscle in terms of going in and understanding the anatomy and what's going on, we kind of had this aha moment where we said, okay, look, maybe we can use electrical stimulation to activate the nerves that innervate these structures and get the body to make its own tear again. Okay, so now we've got this great idea, right? We're going to use electrical stimulation. We're going to um, activate this nerve. We've got this really cool thing um, that uh, we can't believe nobody's thought of. Um, and what our thought was is we were going to directly activate the lacrimal gland. And we were going to do something. Literally, this is an image that we showed some doctors. Uh, we were going to take this, uh, like a pacemaker-like device. We were going to take a wire. We are going to run it under the skin up the neck and then plug this in a very thin wire, of course. Um, that we were going to then plug into uh, the orbit or the eye socket. Uh, and the reception was not good. <laughs> so, um, so we showed this. The first doctor we showed just about passed out. Um, so I said, whatever you do, don't show the patients. Um, and, and so we, we iterated, and we brought this one in, and the thought was, okay, look, you know, we've, now we're going to move to a much smaller device, and maybe the issue was the net, whole neck thing, whatever. Uh, we'll move it back here, and then we'll run the wire up. right? Well very similar response. And I was like, okay, I don't think you guys are getting it. Um, and the first time that we started getting nodding heads uh, was when we brought, uh, brought this in. And the upper right, what you see is a little piece of black plastic with some green modeling clay on it. Um, that was our first prototype uh, for what ultimately became the implant that's sitting below it. And the idea here was that it was an injectable implant that would sit next to the lacrimal gland, the gland that uh, makes the majority of this tear, and it was going to act like a little pacemaker. Um, and again, uh, having looked at you know, where we ended up, um, something, something must have gone sideways with this one, right? <laughs> we didn't end up with it, um, and I'll tell you about that. Um, 
But so now we're, we're kind of going into the, the second year here at Stanford, okay? Um, identified some new partners. Um, so Jim Loudon was a postdoc in the, uh, the physics department. Uh, Mark Blumenkrantz and Daniel Palinker, um, faculty here at Stanford. And we uh, were able to raise some money, right? So um, BASIS was mentioned earlier. Uh, we were fortunate enough to get a $25,000 check from the, the BASIS competition, um, put a little bit of, of money in the bank. We were able to use that to, to get some venture back seed capital um, and do some early work. So I'm gonna take a pause here uh, because what I'm telling you, it sounds like a very linear story, right? We go out, we're gonna go in the clinic, find some needs, we got this great need. Um, now we're gonna go and come up with a solution to it. You know, that's terrific. Um, now we're just gonna you know, just go raise some money and then that'll all work out and, and move forward. Um, and in retrospectively, you can draw a straight line through every one of those points, right? Uh, but what you don't see is there's a lot of other points on that too. Um, and so this was actually a very difficult time. Um, this was a stressful time. Uh, there was um, a group where we're trying to figure out, do we wanna be entrepreneurs or do we wanna go work for a company, right? Um, and so what I'd like to do is talk a little bit about managing personal risk um, and something that um, for those of you who are interested in, op in entrepreneurship who are sitting in this room, um, I think is very relevant. And part of the reason that I'm bringing it up is because oftentimes I see young entrepreneurs um, taking um, what I believe anyway to be probably unreasonable risk. And sometimes going all in on something that's very, very high risk. Um, so I, I at least want to pose a couple of, of thoughts and then kind of swing back the other way in terms of uh, what you can do to manage that risk um, as an individual. All right, so here you're thinking, you know, do I want to, do I want to, go out and be this entrepreneur or, or do I want to go, um, go and, and perhaps work for one uh, or work for another company? And so I'm going to give you some unsolicited advice, um, but I think uh, hopefully it'll be, uh, be helpful for you. So the first thing is to say, um, consider your opportunity costs, right? So I'm seeing a lot of young faces in the room, which makes me think that uh, the vast majority of you are students, right? So you wouldn't be here um, if you weren't very capable and didn't have a lot of opportunity, right? So by jumping in and going all in on something, you're, you really are, there's a cost to that. So you're, you're giving up um, something that might be there. And just to kind of plug that side, um, now that I've been at Allergan for a year and a half, I realize there frankly are a lot of opportunities in big companies, right? Uh, so there's really a tremendous um, uh, opportunity to make impact because these companies are actually already in the marketplace and they're there with the customers. Um, there's a lot of opportunity to innovate within these companies because they have resources, uh, and also personal growth because you're, you're being taught by people who do something really well. Um, on the other hand, if you have something that's interesting, if it's something that you really have the bug, you have good people around you um, and getting uh, encouragement from it, then, then give it a go. Um, it's something that uh, I used to describe it as it's, 90% of the time you're living the dream and 10% of the time it's sheer misery and there's, there's nothing in between. Um, but that's a, a, a pretty decent, uh, decent trade-off there. Um, but what I would recommend is to the extent possible, um, hedge. So if you're thinking about um, starting a company, you're, you're in a really great position right now um, because you're at Stanford or you know, perhaps uh, you're, you're working someplace else and in a similar situation. Um, this is the best incubator in the world, right? And it's the best incubator for you in particular, not only because of all the resources that are here and all the people that are here, um, but also because if something doesn't work out, 
right? A year later and this thing goes belly up. Um, your next employer, all they know is that you were a really involved and interested student at Stanford who had this great side project of something going on. It was really creative, right? Um, and if instead you kind of go all in on something and it doesn't work out, well then the story is a little bit more complex. So, um, all right, so enough of that. Um, what I will do is, is kind of talk to you about what we did. Um, and for me and for our group, um, we set a threshold and said, okay, look, we're coming up on this two-year mark. Um, we're about to, to uh, be um, uh, released uh, slash punted from campus, right? So what, um, so what happens then? Uh, and do we want to set a threshold? Because frankly, um, I was applying for jobs at the same time, right? I didn't know what was going to happen uh, in cultivating relationships. Um, because it was uncertain. Um, and for us, our threshold was, was really raising a bona fide Series A. And I'm not saying that this uh, is, should be the same threshold for everyone, because everyone, uh, every story is different. But um, the reasons that we chose this is primarily because if we were able to get real money into the company, then we could set, uh, have a much higher probability of success, right? And that's because there's capital. That's because we've got better people around the table, uh, people who are experienced and know what they're doing. Um, and frankly, on the worst case side, um, you know, it, it is a, a really great experience, right? I mean, you're getting experience managing a project, managing individuals, et cetera. So in our case, what we needed um, was uh, basically data showing that the device, uh, the device works. And fortunately, in our case, it did. Uh, <laughs> so we did some early animal work and actually some even early clinical work. Um, and we were able to raise uh, a, a pretty solid Series A um, from three venture firms, Kleiner Perkins, uh, NEA, and Burson Ventures. So um, at that point, we're really off to, the, uh, off to the races. And it was really a, a very fun time. Um, I moved into kind of a shoebox of an office, especially when you need lab space, 1,800 feet. Um, we started packing in. At some point, we were growing. We had literally little cubbies set up on the, on the conference table, people working in the copy, copy room. Um, and it was a lot of fun. Um, so we built an implant. It ran for our first clinical trial. And I kind of told you the end of the, the story on this one a little bit, and that sometimes the first idea isn't always the best one, right? And so we build this implant. Uh, we get in there. We, we treat 40 patients. And fortunately, safety was, was very, very good. No one got hurt. Um, but some patients got efficacy, and some of them didn't, right? So it was working out really well for some. It was not working out quite as well for others. And simultaneously, we're feeling this healthcare environment changing under our feet much faster than we thought, um, than we thought that it could, right? So here we are. We're building an implantable device. Um, it's a procedure. It's invasive. It's going to take a very long time to get approved and actually get out into the market. So especially looking out and saying five years from now, what the health, uh, what's the healthcare um, environment going to look like? Is this really what we should be focusing on? Um, it's also expensive for the payers, expensive for the patients. Um, and so fortunately, this coincided uh, with us actually having uh, a really nice insight. Um, and what we realized is actually that our best performing patients, despite having an implant on one side, actually were getting tearing on both eyes. Um, now, the reason that's really exciting is because it turns out those two eyes aren't connected, right? The only way they're connected is through the brain, um, which tells us that uh, we're actually activating reflex. So we got to thinking and said, okay, is there another way we can activate a reflex to make this happen? 
Uh, and actually, Jim Loudon and I were down in Mexico eating fish tacos. There's Jim eating said fish tacos right there. Um, and had this idea of actually activating the nose. So um, inside the walls of the office, we have this, uh, this uh, we call, affectionately called the reflex, the wasabi reflex. So um, everybody in the room uh, who's ever put too much wasabi on your sushi, kind of backdraft it in your nose, right? you know exactly what this reflex is. You've got a bunch of tears pouring down your face. Um, now, what you may not know is that actually for every single person in this room right now, this reflex is actually active right now, driving your tearing. So unless you have a cold or allergies, um, you're breathing through your nose. So every breath that we take, both in and out, very gently activates the same nerve that the wasabi does and drives a third of your tear production right now. And so it turns out that if you activate it, then it can be a really nice and effective thing for dry eye patients. So, not only were we able to get the better efficacy from it, but it really fit within this, this archetype of what we were looking for uh, for the healthcare environment as well. It's something that was non-invasive and better for the patients, is cheaper for the payers, cheaper, cheaper for the patients, uh, provided a quote, practice building opportunity, which means um, the doctor can actually provide this product out of their office, provide a revenue source where they're getting cut in other places, um, and also provides a really nice uh, opportunity to leverage information technology uh, with a, a Bluetooth-enabled device. So here's the device that has, it has two components to it. The blue part is a rechargeable, uh, rechargeable electrical stimulator device. Uh, there's a little disposable that goes on top, and that disposable uh, has some hydrogel that allows it kind of a connection to the nose. Um, and as I mentioned, it's, it's Bluetooth-capable and has a, a digital companion app. And what's really nice about this is now we can leverage the technology that, uh, that this valley uh, has developed for everything else and, and introduce it into ophthalmology where it's never been there before. And what it allows us to do is it allows both the patient, um, but very importantly the physician, to track how the patient's doing. Uh, what it also does is dry eyes environmental dis uh, disease. So we can use geolocation weather data and say, all right, you know, what's the, you know, using humidity and wind and temperature, et cetera. Is this going to be a good dry eye day or a bad dry eye day? Something very important to these patients. I and mean, frankly, something as simple as being able to leverage your smart device to order refills, right? And the same way that we order anything else. Um, and it checked all the boxes, right? So we, as better for the patient, uh, better for the healthcare provider, we pulled it out of the hospital system. So there's no, uh, no surgical procedure there. Uh, it's cheaper for the payers. It's less invasive um, and, and less risky, and therefore, cleaner path through the FDA, unfortunately, um, has been very uh, well received by the societies. So I, I will show you a, a quick video here. You get to see this thing in action. So uh, what you're looking at before I start it, uh, this is a close-up of someone's eye. The bullseye rings are a function of the device and the light source that's on there, so it's not, not anything funky going on with the patient. Um, and what you'll look at is the very, uh, the lower lid margin there, okay? And so what you'll see, the patient just started using the device. Within about 10 seconds or so, you'll see a pretty dramatic increase in the tear lake there, the tear production level. And what's also was really fun for us, as it turns out, I mentioned there's different components in the tear uh, coming from different organs, and actually this reflex activates all of them, where our first device was actually going after one. Um, and that's something that's actually very important uh, from a, a clinical perspective as well. So this is healthcare, so we, we do clinical trials. Uh, we uh, have completed seven trials a day, treated almost 700 patients, 
and the device is currently sitting with the FDA right now. So fingers crossed, we're hoping we can launch this in the first half of next year. Um, so as mentioned before, that we were acquired by Allergan uh, in August of last year. Um, and I did want to touch on that as well. So uh, in addition to, uh, to the obvious in terms of, of providing return for the shareholders, uh, most importantly, Allergan creates this enormous lever for us, right? So if we're a very small company and we're trying to go out and treat patients that are not only all over the United States, but frankly, all over the planet, right? It's really hard. I mean, you've got to hire one rep at a time. Um, it's something that uh, Facebook advertising alone isn't going to take care of because you do have this complex network. You need a healthcare provider to actually ultimately prescribe that device. Um, in Allergan, uh, they're the world leader in the space right now, right? They have sales representatives in the office of 23,000 eye care professionals in the U.S. alone. Um, that's almost all of them, <laughs> right? And what just a really tremendous opportunity for us to be able to make a really meaningful impact on public health uh, in a very short order of time. Um, I did also just want to touch on it, now that I've actually spent some time in a, in a, a big company and just and reflect on it a little bit as well, um, sort of in line with some other things we've talked about, in addition to kind of this management of risk that um, I think uh, is, is important, um, certainly to, to some of our staff. And um, I've also learned a lot, right? I'm there, I'm working in a place, we're about to launch a product and we're gonna launch it in a world-class way, right? And learning from people who um, are very, very good at this, um, people who are scaling manufacturing, learning how to do that, um, and I think that's also true um, for, for our staff as well, being able to come in uh, and really uh, learn from people who are, are, frankly, some of the best in the business, and particularly at some of these later stage um, parts, uh, parts of the product cycle. Um, and again, uh, making uh, this opportunity to make impact. I think one of the things that has been uh, really fun about this um, is that there's money there, right? I mean, I, I mentioned when you were in the startup, uh, you know, you, you have confidence that there's going to be the next check if you're doing the right things, but, uh, but frankly, there's a lot of uncertainty there. And when you're at a profitable business, um, there's a lot of resources. And so actually within our group, we, we have two pipeline products that weren't there when we started. Um, and actually some really innovative folks within our group have developed two new, uh, two new technology ideas and they're, they're up and running. And uh, It's really nice to be in a place where where that can happen. And I think that um, to echo sort of the, the opportunity for entrepreneurship as well, um, just, uh, just relaying that that can actually happen in a big company. So I'm gonna leave you there. Um, what I am gonna say is that this is just an amazing time in healthcare. Um, literally this almost 20% of our entire economy, right, that is largely untouched by the types of technologies that this you know, 20 mile radius has been uh, transforming uh, the world with. And it's a really exciting time to be there. Um, there's a, lo a lot of opportunity, uh, not only to, um, to, to come in and, and uh, move the market with share, um, but frankly, to really do a great thing for, you know, for our community and for our country, right? I mean, we, we need it. Um, it's getting really expensive. We're having a hard time keeping up with it. Um, so I hope that uh, some of you guys will uh, take a look at healthcare and, and maybe take a look at the biodesign courses as well. So with that, thank you very much. Yeah, of course.
So, sure. So when you were finishing the product design program, you said your threshold that there isn't a Series A, but you could be essentially uh, trying to get to that threshold for a while. What, what did you know it was you were going to pursue kind of that pathway versus pursuing company? I'm guessing there was like a time crunch there as well. Yeah, so the question was, um, when uh, it's not like you can kind of magically time when you're going to get the financing and uh, when we're so the threshold was was the Series A, um, and how do you sort of time that, and especially with respect to other opportunities that might be happening, um, and you know it's not easy, right? Um, you're constantly reading the tea leaves, uh, you're constantly <laughs> trying to uh, push out, um, you know, your hedge opportunities and saying, oh well, look, you know, we got a few more months where things are really exciting about this, et cetera. Um, and then also, frankly, just you know, just really digging in and, and trying to to, um, to to drive people to closing in the A. I think one thing that um, has certainly happened, and what I would recommend is to the extent um, possible, and you're in a great uh, position to do that, is I would talk to somebody who's experienced at fundraising. I think um, the way that I would go and raise a Series A now is just so different than the way that I would raise. Uh, uh, that I raised it um, the first time. Um, I think that there's a lot of things that you can do uh, to really not only um, garner interest and excitement, but frankly manage a process um, because uh, everybody talks about running a competitive process and how you try to get multiple term sheets and you know, really get the best value for your company, et cetera. Um, but the reality is people don't reach the end at the same time unless you really drive them to, to do that. And that's something that um, I didn't actually learn until until raising uh, raising later money. So sure. you have um, you have this innovative digital device that's taking in a ton of data. Can you talk about uh, if you're using data and data science to make both the device better technically and also from a business model perspective? Yeah, so the question is basically how are we leveraging the digital aspect of the, the product and um, how, are we, uh, how is that uh, driving both the, the business model but also the, the technical side as well. So, I mean, I, I think just as data enables a lot of other things, I mean, it's, it's not um, you know, valuable in and of itself per se, but um, it can really be a great enabler. Um, in our case, we use it, uh, again, to enable care. So it's something that... Um, allows physicians to check in. They can look at a portal, see how patients are doing, and you know, Mrs. Jones, I'm sorry you're not um, feeling good, but you know, maybe it's not a big surprise because you haven't, <laughs> you haven't been using your treatment. Um, again, also in terms of providing direct value to the patient uh, from looking at the environment and other things that Im directly impact dry eye. Um, but where I think things can be actually incredibly powerful from a business perspective is that in lots of industries, um, the customer relationship uh, is the relationship with the customer is very direct, right? So Google knows more about me than I know about me, right? <laughs> because I do everything on Google. Um, but in the healthcare space, uh, when someone writes a prescription for drugs, you don't even know who has the script, right? And you literally don't even, that person is completely anonymous. Um, and so what that does is it makes it really hard uh, to, to know um, what could be making things better for that patient. How do you make patients more compliant? Um, how do you uh, impact care in a meaningful way there? I think this is something that's, um, that's really powerful with a technology like this, is you have that direct link, you have that direct customer relationship, 
And, and you, can, you can nudge them, right? And you can say, look, you know, you're not using the, the way that it should, or the doctor can nudge them uh, and say, look, you're not using it the way you should, um, et cetera. So. So one major difference between a software startup and a medical technology startup is all the regulations. So like there's the FDA, there's CMS. Um, can you comment on how the landscape is now, or maybe how they're trying to streamline the process to make it faster from um, product creation to, to market? Yeah, so the question was uh, the big difference between software and healthcare um, is that it's highly regulated, right? And then in addition to the regulation to even be able to get onto the market, um, you have this entire reimbursement side that has to be covered too, right? So uh, not only does it have to be approved, but somebody has to agree that they're gonna pay for it. Um, and so how does that impact things and, and uh, how, um, uh, how are things potentially changing? So um, what I would say is that in some ways, it's very tempting to, to think about those things as barriers because, because frankly, they are barriers, right? I mean, you gotta go through a lot to do that and, and you have to have knowledge of the system, right? You have to understand um, what this regulation thing is all about to be able to get a product onto the market and then you have to understand what this reimbursement thing is all about to get there. Um, what I will tell you is, I mean, it's a great thing. I mean, here I am, I am a total neophyte, you know, just spun this thing out of, out of Stanford just four years ago. Um, and I don't have some high school or at Pally High uh, coming up with uh, a competitive version of our product that's gonna launch immediately after, right? It's, there's some complexity there, um, but there's an incredible network of people in this valley and beyond that understand the nuance. And frankly, it's not rocket science, right? Um, so it doesn't take um, a lot to understand it. You just have to be able to get in and, and get that understanding and then play by the rule. And once you get on the other side, actually, it's, it's, it's really um, a really tremendous um, barrier that actually ends up being very protective. Um, and there are things that are, are working to make, it, uh, to make it go faster. But inherently, I mean, these are, they're long processes, right? Uh, but I think that's part of the trade-off. I mean, the markets are equally as large. Even a very tiny fraction of a $3 trillion market is still can be a multi-billion dollar market, right? I mean, it's still enormous markets. Um, and so there's really enormous opportunity. Um, but you're not competing with, um, you have intellectual property, you have uh, FDA, you have reimbursement barriers that really prevent um, competitors from coming into the space. Sure. Um, so you spoke about when moving to allergen or allergen, how that you know provided with like more resources and stuff. I'm kind of curious on like a like a leadership level. It went from you and your partners kind of running your own company, your own team, to now being like part of a much much bigger organization. How did um, that work out for you? Yeah. So the question is about leadership and going from something that's uh, a very small company and, and starting off in a real partnership level, to even in a growing startup, frankly. And then transitioning to now, you know, an a company with some 25,000 employees in it. Um, you know, what is, what is that like and what does that mean? Um, and, and frankly, it's actually very different. I mean, one of the things that I've um, actually really valued about my learning experience um, at Allergan uh, is just it's a very different type of leadership, right? Um, when you're going, and even in the startup phase, where you start, it's, you've got, it's you and some buddies around a table. Um, everybody's involved in every decision, right? You're sitting there and you're, and you're making calls and you're going off and doing things. You don't have to have any real structure from a management perspective. Um, 
And as that grows, uh, you have to both evolve um, leadership and management, and there's a distinction there. Um, so leadership in terms of setting vision and setting culture, um, and that really has to start becoming real as you start having uh, more than just a few people around the table. Um, and that also um, is leadership in a startup where you're setting a vision. So our vision is we wanted to be the world leader in dry eye, right? I mean, and it's gotta be, it's gotta be ambitious, right? Because you're, you're going out there and you're trying to change the world, and if you're not, if you're not shooting for that world-changing thing, then you're never gonna get there. Um, and setting an environment that's a, a nice, a, a good place to work for others, et cetera. Um, but also setting up a management system that is, is able to, to kind of tolerate um, and make functional um, a larger increasing uh, uh, group of people. And so we've gone from having no management system, it was the whiteboard and you know, three people around a table making calls, um, to having a, a formal management system um, in a small private operating company, to now you know, in this huge matrix-based organization, right? Um, so there's people uh, in other parts of the organization that are making uh, really, really uh, important calls on what we're doing. Um, the leadership is actually, uh, previously it was, it was my team that was reporting to me and then actually um, out to the world in terms of, of being an evangelist for, uh, you know, for the company. Um, and now actually a lot of my effort is, is spent internally. Um, I, spent, I spent a lot of time with you know, internal sales, right? Um, so I'm uh, going in and selling other parts of the organization um, on what we're doing, um, and, and really have to influence people uh, that they aren't reporting to me oftentimes. Um, and it's actually, it, it, it requires a different style, um, and you have to motivate people in different ways. Um, and so it's, it has been different, but, it, but frankly, it's, um, it's been part of the fun of this, this experience. Anybody else? Yeah. So, besides, in hindsight now, before the fund, besides the funding, was there another indication that you had that you were on something compelling? In hindsight, besides just the fact that you had an external VC invest in you, was there a, another milestone that you think uh, when, when you knew you were onto something big? Yeah. So the question is, was there any? What were the other signals that we were onto something um, important, as opposed to just this funding event, right? Um, and they're, frankly, they're the same signals that you get for whether or not you're on to a right life partner, or you're, you're on to, you're on to um, you know, the, uh, any, the right, anything else you do in your life. Um, and that's, are people around you excited about it? Are you getting positive signals from it? Are you getting negative signals, right? Um, and frankly, it doesn't, it's not just this and or, um, but it evolves and there's constantly negative signals. But can you keep evolving that um, and iterating very, very quickly to where people you know, there's momentum in that, and it's actually people getting more and more excited. Um, or is it something where it's like, eh, okay, you know, I'll, I'll take this meeting because you know you're at Stanford and your professor, uh, I owe your professor the courtesy of sitting down with you for 20 minutes. Um, or is it something where people are, are, they sit in, they're like, oh my gosh, actually, this is really interesting. You know, you should think about this, this, this. Um, so that's that's a lot of it. Yeah. And, and so, is a new administration and a potential change to the Affordable Care Act something yeah. that a prospective medtech entrepreneur should factor in if they're thinking about building a medtech startup? Yeah. So the question is, uh, what does what does Trump mean for healthcare? Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, um, and what does Trump mean for anything? I don't know. Um, so so the, there's um, frankly, it's a big question um, because it's. 
Um, I think there's a lot of uncertainty around uh, what the agenda will be. Um, and, uh, and I think there's uncertainty not only in terms of communication, but I think that, that frankly, there's uncertainty within the administration as to what the position is going to be. Um, there has been talk of uh, either completely dismantling or meaningfully changing the Affordable Care Act um, that certainly will impact uh, uh, health care. Um, I think there's also been uh, talk um, from uh, the Trump campaign about uh, maintaining some sort of system that promotes high insurance uh, percentages within the country as well. Uh, what, I, what I do think is that um, fundamentally, I, I, I think that the same problems are going to be the same problems, the same things that are driving all this tremendous change. I mean, we're, we're kind of tapping out at this 17, 18% of GDP. Um, you know, even if it, if it goes to 19 or something, I mean, it's still, it's still an issue. Um, and whether or not we're dealing with a 95% insured uh, population or an 85% insured population seem to be the same sorts of things. Um, but it may have some impact on how acute it is or is not. Sneezing. Yeah, so the question is, uh, how does the device work, right? And, and does, it, does it activate sneezing? Um, and actually, I would say the first time or two you use it, with, patients often do sneeze um, because you've got something in your nose, you're activating the, these, these nerves. And the same thing that if uh, you were to get something stuck up there, your body might try to, to sneeze. Um, it's really those first couple of times it activates that. Um, but uh, you saw in the video, I mean, it's literally it's 10 seconds or so. Um, most patients use it twice a day. So you leave it in your bathroom, use it in the morning, they use it in the evening, uh, and, and basically use it until they get the effect. What are the side effects? Does your nose drip? Or, I mean, what are the things you were fighting against? Yeah. <laughs> you know, what are the things that came up? That... Yeah, so the question is, what are, what are the side effects? And what are the, some of the things from a clinical perspective that were we up against? And um, frankly, beyond kind of the occasional sneeze that happens, um, one of the things that's interesting, actually, is that uh, the tears actually drain into your nose. Um, that's actually part of the function of this entire reflex. So those tears wash out the wasabi. Um, and if you're watching a really sad movie, um, or a sad election, perhaps, um, and, <laughs> and, and you really cry, you start sniffling, right? Um, and, and that sniffling uh, is, uh, is a function of those tears being in the nose. Um, and so there is some sniffling that, that can occur, particularly if you really give yourself um, a, good, a good dose. Um, but w one thing we've been extremely, uh, in, I'm trying to think, of, I think the other side effect that um, occasionally happens is if patients have a really, really dry nose um, and you place something in your nose, then you might get a little, a little bit of spotting of blood. Um, but one of the things that's been really great about this particular technology is that it is so low r risk. Um, it's something that, uh, from a trial perspective, the FDA formally designated as a non-significant risk product. Um, and it's so great because now we can actually reach a much wider fraction of those 30 million people who have dry eye uh, because it is so low risk and yet effective, unlike the, the procedural treatment that we had. When you were in the process of um, like observing the biomedical uh, industry and like looking for inefficiencies, how did you narrow it down from the hundreds of problems that you found to just one? It seems like it would be difficult to choose like, one problem. Yeah, so the question is, you know, we had these 300 and some odd uh, needs. How do we kind of narrow it down to one? 
Uh, it seems like it must have been difficult. The answer, yes, it is. Uh, and, and so, um, really, there's there's a few things. I mean, we applied kind of a high-level filter of what what is the um, a genuine clinical problem and what has uh, commercial potential. And what I mean by that, and I think this is actually uh, quite true well beyond healthcare. Um, that's you've got to look at um, at what is the potential value, what is the market potential of this product. And is the investment that's required to get there, to actually get this out there, commensurate with that opportunity, right? So if you're going to have to go through and some big, long, and the healthcare projects are, aren't cheap, right? I mean, I think getting a medical device to market on average is 70 to 100 million bucks, right? So those are big dollars. Um, and if you can't be convinced that at the end of that, you're going to have hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars in revenue, um, then it's really a tough um, it's a tough call to make in terms of being able to garner the investment on the front end to do it. Now, on the other hand, if you're going to be making a very uh, something that is less intensive um, in terms of price, I mean, you're making a, a, a surgical instrument, something like that, then maybe it's hundreds of thousands or you know, maybe whatever it is to get there, then the market opportunity doesn't have to be the same either. Um, we, rightly or wrongly, were looking for a big opportunity, and that was that was... Uh, one of our filters, and then frankly, you know, we're we're looking at these different problems, and dry eye was the one where we had, you know, had the idea of how to fix it. So, um, so that was part of it too. Yes. You see opportunities to apply some of the learnings on the design side uh, and the medical device experience to therapeutics and the world of uh, molecules and more traditional sets? Yeah. So the question is. Uh, is there anything that can be applied from this device side to, to the pharma um, side? Um, the short answer is yes. Um, I'm actually very, very excited about biopharma right now. Um, and there's uh, a lot of reasons, but um, some of the challenges on the pricing side don't exist um, to the same degree anyway. Uh, obviously, it's been a political football, but um, to the same degree on, um, on the drug side as they do on the device side. Um, and I think there is that opportunity. I think it's um, but I think it tends to be a, a certain blend, uh, a, a certain type of therapeutic. So, um, for example, we actually had a drug program at Oculate, and we spun it out into another company, and that company is an independent operating company um, right now. Um, and that was uh, a, a pharmaceutical that, rather than going through and having this you know, really key insight, we've, we've realized that there's this receptor on this, you know, on this cell that nobody else realized was there, and we've you know, gone through and, and designed a molecule to go in there and tag that receptor. Um, instead, we, we said, actually, look, um, you could possibly activate the same pathway, the same nasal pathway, frankly, um, using a pharmaceutical spray as well. Um, and so we went through a, a pretty organized process of, of actually going down screening molecules. Um, but we were screening molecules that were already out in the marketplace, right? Um, somebody else had already taken them to a certain, uh, certain level, and, and it turns out that um, uh, the ideal molecule was actually sitting in a company that, um, that was going defunct. Uh, the molecule, they'd run it through phase two trials. It was very, very safe, um, but didn't treat uh, gastroparesis, <laughs> and so, so we bought it off them. Um, and so, yes, I, I think you can still use those same um, um, techniques, but I think it, uh, it's maybe not on, as much on the discovery side, um, but certainly on the development side.
Okay. That's good. <laughs> Thanks, guys. You have been listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find additional podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.